Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Well, we're going to one of my favorite cities and time periods today, 1890s Chicago, Illinois. Chicago is a treasure trove of true crime history, and the case we're going to hear about today is fairly unknown, but incredibly unique and interesting all the same. So I'm pleased to have as my guest today, Robert Lorizel. He works as a freelance journalist, and he's also the author of a phenomenal book about a once-famous Chicago murder, lost in the footnotes of history until he resurrected the story. His book is called Alchemy of Bones, Chicago's Lutgert Murder Case of 1897. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Eric. I'd like to start by asking you where you first discovered this story and a little bit about your, your journey in writing this book. Yeah, at the time, uh, I was working at Pioneer Press, uh, not to be confused with the Pioneer Press up in St. Paul. Uh, Pioneer Press is a chain of weekly newspapers in the Chicago area. And uh, I got to be fascinated with the local history. Um, one thing I enjoyed doing was looking up old newspaper articles from late 1800s, early 1900s about things that were happening in the suburbs of Chicago. I just would hunt around for interesting things. And one day I was at the Palatine Historical Society, which is in a suburb called Palatine. It's uh, northwest of Chicago. They had a scrapbook of these uh, newspaper clippings, including one from uh, 1897 that attracted my attention and it was about uh, this reporter from the suburbs who was covering this sensational trial down in the city of Chicago in, in the downtown area. 
And uh, this article told a story about how he and some other reporters were eavesdropping on the jury at this murder trial, including this uh, sort of stunt where uh, they tied a reporter to a chair and lowered him down uh, the heating shaft in the courthouse so that this reporter could eavesdrop through the vent on the jury as the jurors were deliberating. And this reporter who was on the chair was whispering what he was hearing through the speaking tube. And uh, the reporters up in the attic of the courthouse who were holding on to him, you know, keeping the rope in place so that he didn't fall down to his death, uh, were hearing him relaying the jurors, jurors' deliberations to them and writing it down and then uh, relaying all this information to the newspaper, uh, which then was publishing uh, in basically in real time what the jury was deliberating about. So this story uh, really just struck me as amazing. And at the time, I had no idea what the case itself was about. It just mentioned that this was the Lutger trial. Obviously, at the time, in 1897, whoever was writing this little blurb assumed that everyone would know what the Lutger trial was. It was like the O.J. Simpson case of its time that didn't need any introduction to readers. But that it got me really intrigued. So I thought uh, I should look into this case. And uh, that was the start of a journey uh, that took me several years. I think it was about eight years from that point till the time the book got published of delving into this story of Adolf Lukert being on trial for murder in the disappearance of his wife, uh, Louisa Lukert, in a sausage factory. So Chicago, 1897. What was it like there? Well, Chicago in 1897, Chicago was the fastest growing city at the time. I believe the fastest in the world, certainly the fastest growing in the United States. And a lot of people viewed it as a sort of quintessentially American urban metropolis uh, that was growing by leaps and bounds and had a big population of immigrants, especially Germans. Some of the key figures in the story that I wrote about in my book were German immigrants. And Chicago had had the World's Fair in 1893, which attracted millions of people to the city, visitors and people looking for economic opportunities. Uh, but in the years right after the World's Fair, uh, there had been this economic downturn, basically a depression nationwide, and it hit Chicago especially hard. So some of the key people in my book, Adolf Lutgert, uh, for example, was a German immigrant who had found success in America. Unlike a lot of German German immigrants who struggled in industrial jobs and really had a hard time of uh, achieving the American dream, somehow Adolf Lukert had managed to figure out a way of making sausage and doing it in an industrial complex that would make a lot of money, finding the capital to build his business. He had a couple of different factories and by the 1890s, he was considered the king of sausages in Chicago, and some estimates had him as the leading sausage manufacturer in the United States, although, you know, hard statistics on that are hard to come by. But as his economic downturn hit, his business really went down, so that by the time of this case in 1897, he was essentially shutting down his business and losing money and desperate 
for some financial backing. And his wife was another German immigrant named Luisa was growing increasingly concerned about their financial state. So there was a lot of tension uh, within the, the Lukert family. And all this is surrounded by a neighborhood with a lot of German immigrants, people who would sort of give this guy deference. If they saw him coming down the sidewalk with his Great Danes that he liked to walk, they kind of stepped aside because this guy was the, the local business titan, and you knew that you didn't mess with him. He, a lot of people depended on him for their jobs. And even now that even though he, his business was in decline, a lot of people still thought this guy's a millionaire. He's kind of a big shot. Don't mess with him. And it's a, a pretty incredible story how he comes to the United States with three cents to his name and manages to build this sausage empire from nothing. It's quite a Horatio Elger story. Yeah, and I'm really, uh, I don't know that I've figured out exactly how he was successful as opposed to a lot of other people. It's really a fascinating topic when you think about it. Um, when you compare the stories of different immigrants and, you know, uh, different uh, Americans and, and how some people managed to become big successes in business and others struggled. In his case, we do know that there were some shady dealings that he had, including things like, keeping a different set of accounting books. There was actually some litigation, people suing him for fraud and things like that. It's hard to say whether those kinds of suspicious practices were how he made his fortune, but they certainly seem like they were part of his, his business. So he's got a business life, but also a personal one. Could you talk about his first wife, and his second wife, Louisa, and what the family situation was like in 1897. Yeah, you know, um, some people, back when he was in the news in 1897 because of this murder case, people looked back at his family history, and I think to some extent they were looking for skeletons in his closet uh, that may not have been there. You know, rumors went around that his grandfather and father back in Germany had done the various things of which it's possible. I know a little bit of German and I got some help translating German and I found some records of his family back in Germany, but it's very sketchy. So it's hard to rule out the fact that there was there were skeletons in the closet of his family, but uh, there's really not much proof of that. And then once he gets to, the, to Chicago and starts uh, making a life for himself, he does have one wife who then dies. And later on, when his second wife disappears and there's this trial, people look back on the first wife and think, hmm, maybe she also disappeared, you know, died under mysterious circumstances. Perhaps uh, he's a serial killer. But the best of what I was able to find in the record, she died of natural causes of disease. I don't see really any reason to believe that there was anything nefarious about her death. And there were a couple of children in the family that died, but that also was very common at that time period. The infant mortality rates were very high, and a lot of ch children died when they were just a few years old. So as far as I can tell, his family went through a lot of the typical uh, tragedies that immigrant families in America went through with uh, deaths in the family. One thing that is kind of curious is that after his first wife dies, he marries this his second wife, Within a very short time, I believe it was just a couple of months, 
And the story, as he told it, was that, you know, he knew that his children, who were now with a father and no mother, needed a, a, a woman to raise them. So he was very eager to get a new wife and basically uh, complete the household. So kind of went on the hunt for a woman who could be his second wife and quickly found one. I don't know if that's how plausible that is. Uh, I, perhaps in that time period, uh, in a man who is somewhat wealthy would be able to pull that off. Um, but it does make you wonder if uh, perhaps he he had known Louisa or had an affair with her before his first wife died. I mean, who knows? I can only speculate about that. One other part of his history that I found very telling um, is that for a while he ran a saloon, and there was a man who died behind in the barn behind his saloon and was found with a wad of tobacco stuffed into his mouth and, and his head beaten. And there were suspicions that Adolf Lukert himself had murdered this man. Uh, but the coroner's jury quickly found that uh, it was just uh, you know an accidental death and Adolf Lukert never suffered any illegal consequences from that. And it was the family of this of this man who's named Hugh McGowan, an Irishman, uh, the family claimed that the coroner's jury was packed with friends of Adolf Lukert, who obviously would have skewed the verdict to help out their pal, the rich guy in the neighborhood. So this is one instance where I think there is some plausible reason to believe that uh, Lukert may have committed one murder before this major case that came in 1897 involving his second wife. Yeah, you write that. The son testified that his father never drank, yet he'd been drunk when killed, and never used tobacco, yet there was a big wad of tobacco <laughs> shoved in his throat. Yeah, exactly. And this is one of those stories where, you know, you write a book like this, and you try to track down as many people connected to it as you can, but sometimes after the book comes out, people contact you, and I did hear from... Some people from someone in that family, a descendant, I forget if he was, he was like the great, great grandson or something like that of um, Hugh McGowan, the man who may have been killed by Rupert. This story had gone down in that family for generations. So obviously it's nearly forgotten by this point, but it was obviously a source of bitterness for a long time that this family felt that this guy got away with murder. Right. So you've already mentioned the poor financial state that Lutgart had found himself in in 1897. And much of his trouble was the result of one man, a man named Davy, whom he befriended. Can you explain this relationship between Lutgart and Davy? Yeah. Um, well, Davy is this interesting character, uh, an Englishman who had a few years before this, he had come to Chicago at the time of the World's Fair in 1893 there were newspaper stories about how basically he was running a scam trying to uh, get people in Chicago to loan him money. And there were newspaper articles about it. And then he skipped town once he was getting bad publicity. Uh, and this is the sort of thing where you can imagine in today's day and age, uh, if this sort of thing had happened and then the person reappeared, you would go on Google and look for the person's name and <laughs> you would see, Oh, wait a minute, this guy was a scam artist four years ago here in Chicago. I should watch out for him. But in that era, in the 1890s, you know, newspaper archives were not readily available. 
so apparently after you know four years after getting caught in, in a scam like that, he Davy felt safe to return to Chicago and, and try these kinds of tricks again. And people like Adolf Lukert and his business partners were very naive about it and had no idea that this guy was about to pull a fast one on them. So, you know, he basically came to Lukert and presented this idea of incorporating his business and getting financing for it, all of which Lukert thought sounded great. Um, it would be a lifeline to keep his sausage factory running. But as all this was going on, Davey kept asking him to loan, to loan him money. I'm always amazed that, you know, you read about con, con games like this and somehow the people who are coming to you and saying that they're going to invest in you and get all kinds of money for you, somehow those people seem, always seem to persuade their victims that they need some loan of some sort to tie them over while this thing's going on. That kind of thing still happens today. And that's basically what happened here. Luker lost some of his money to this guy, Davey, and then Davey disappeared. And that left Luker in even worse financial shape. By that point, uh, he basically had to stop operations at his factory. He kept it going with sort of a skeleton crew of just a few people, uh, like the night watchman and a couple of workers, you know, to keep, to keep the factory from falling into, into disrepair. But it was not making any more sausage at that point. And this was tens of thousands of dollars Lutgart had lent this man, right? Right, right. And this becomes, you know, uh, th this becomes part of his defense, although in a lot of ways, I mean, it really has no bearing one way or the other on whether Adolf Lutgart later committed murder. But um, he would bring it up as a story, I guess, probably to sort of win sympathy from people that he was a victim to. And that, uh, that this would help explain why his wife might have run off. That was essentially his defense about what happened to his wife. But not that, that she was not murdered, that uh, she was uh, so upset by the financial condition of the family and what was going on with uh, this Davy scam that she decided to leave. Lutgart's wife became pretty despondent, didn't she? Yeah, so again, so, so so a lot of this is based on testimony and interviews with uh, people who knew the family, uh, members of the family, a servant girl who worked, worked with them, some of Lukert's factory workers. And you have to look at all of it with a certain amount of skepticism. One possibility here is that some of these people are trying to help Lukert with his defense so they are playing up these stories about how his wife was upset and acting strange and talking about leaving and having fantasies about meeting a prince who would uh, have her living in a castle somewhere. But on the other hand, I mean, there's no real contradiction uh, between these stories and the idea that she was murdered. These stories may bolstered the idea that she would have run off because supposedly she had talked about it. But it's quite possible that she was upset and acting strange. And then Adolf Luker decided to kill her. Those two stories are not a contradiction to each other. Um, but yes, uh, and, and I find her those stories about her very evocative and emotional. If nothing else, they give you an idea of the kinds of pressures and trauma that people who were struggling in America and in Chicago at that time period, that the kinds of 
trauma that they felt as they dealt with these emotion, these economic downturns. And she was relatively well off. I mean, even though her husband's factory was shut down, I mean, they still had a nice house. They still had a servant girl working with them. She sensed perhaps that things were going badly and that she might end up back where she had been as a poor uh, German immigrant with no money to her name. And the fear of that happening was a nightmare to her. So that would be explain why she starts acting strange in this time period in this first month, the spring of 1897. And there were some rumors circulating that Lutgart might not have been faithful to his wife. Is that right? Yes, that is right. So there were a few possible affairs that he was having. One, there's a woman, uh, Agatha Tosh, who was uh, basically the saloon keeper with her husband uh, across the street uh, running this tavern. And uh, I don't know that there's really solid proof that they had any sort of affair, but uh, Adolf was kind of chummy with her. And then there was this widow named Feld who was in the neighborhood, and they seemed almost like business partners or something. It was kind of hard to totally figure out what their relationship was like. The third person where it seems most plausible that uh, Adolf Lukert was having an affair was the servant, uh, Mary Simmering, who lived with the family and was a cousin of his uh, of his wife. One of the strange things that was going on here, which I have trouble understanding exactly <laughs> how to explain this, but uh, Adolf was spending a lot of nights sleeping in the factory rather than sleeping in his house. He had a little office with a cot in there. And, you know, he claimed that it was under doctor's orders of some sort that, you know, like for health reasons, it was better for him to sleep on the cot in the factory. But that just seems absurd to me. I, I, I think, Obviously, there was some sort of tension between him and his wife that caused him to sleep apart from her. And there were times when Mary, the servant girl, uh, was seen going into the bedroom with him in the factory, the factory cot area. And uh, one of the uh, factory workers even testified that uh, he saw her kissing uh, Lupert. So it seems pretty clear that there was something going on there. We will be back after a brief break. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel of urine! Cat 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. So Louisa Lutgart just disappeared, and the police began investigating this basically as a, as a missing persons case at first. How did the, the police proceed in their investigation of Louisa's disappearance? So on May 1st, 1897, which is a Saturday, that night, their, their child, a, a young boy named Louis, goes to the circus. When he comes home, he sees his mother there. And he later says this is the last time he ever saw her. The next morning, the family wakes up, and their servant, uh, Mary, is preparing breakfast. And the mother, Adolf's wife, Louisa, is just not there. And one of the things that makes this whole situation peculiar is how uh, Adolf really seems very nonchalant and unconcerned about the fact that his wife has disappeared doesn't raise any alarm about it, doesn't call the police about it. So his wife's brother shows up at some point here, not long after that, expecting to see her, and is shocked to discover that she's disappeared. And Adolf is basically telling the story that his wife has run off, that she's fulfilled those threats that she had been making about running off because of their financial difficulties. But... Luis's brother just can't believe that this is happening. So he starts his own search for her. He thinks of places that she might have gone, which basically be the homes of other family members around the Chicago area or even down uh, south of Chicago around uh, Kankakee, Illinois. And uh, no one, none of these people have seen, seen Louisa recently. And none of them know anything about her going off or disappearing Louise's brother Dietrich is going around by horse carriage, horse-drawn carriage to people's farms and asking them uh, if they've seen her. So it's a long, drawn-out process to go around all these people. Uh, it's not something you can do instantly. So, you know, he spends days doing this. And finally, he goes to the police. And at this point, the police uh, get involved in searching for her. And at first, they are treating it like a missing persons case. One of the police officials thinks it's strange that Ada Fluker didn't bother reporting this to the police, yet 
he recalls an earlier time when A.F. Luker did go to the police to report one of his dogs missing. So the contrast here is like, well, this guy would come to the police when he's trying to find one of his dogs, but when his wife just suddenly disappears, he doesn't bother to tell us. So that seemed rather suspicious. He, he really loved those dogs, though. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently so. Um, so, you know, the police do what you would expect them to do, search places like the, the river, Adolf Lukert's sausage factory was close to the Chicago River on the north side of, of the city. And it was in an area where the ground was filled with clay, which turned out to be great material for making bricks. So there were brick factories around there, and there was a terracotta factory. And uh, the reason I'm bringing all this up is that when these places would dig clay up out of the ground, uh, the result would be the, all these holes and pits, which would then fill up with water. So the neighborhood was filled with all these pits, some of which kind of had garbage in them. And, you know, so the police, that was one of the places the police thought, well, if we're looking for someone's body, if, if, she, if, if this Mrs. Lukert is dead, perhaps she's in one of these clay pits. So we'll go around and look at those. And, uh, after searching all these places, they really had no leads for, uh, a dead body or anything like that. The break in the case comes when the police start talking with some of the people who work in Lukert's factory. One of the funny things, which I, one of the things which I found amusing was that it seemed like everyone in the factory was named Frank. <laughs> Common name <laughs> for the time period. Uh, it was kind of a mix of Polish and German workers working for this German boss running a factory. And so there were a couple guys in the factory who had jobs like smoking sausage, and there was a night watchman. And they started to talk to the police, and the police pieced together the story of what happened on the night that Louisa Luker disappeared. And what they found out was that Adolf strangely spent the night in the basement of his factory. And not just sleeping in a cot. He he was like working on boilers and equipment and the night watchman kept trying to go into the basement to see if uh, his boss needed some help. And uh, Luker kept kind of, you know, shooting him away and sending him off on errands and told him, you know, I need to get some, uh, this, uh, celery drink that I love drinking. Uh, so go down to the drugstore and get some for me. Of course, it turned out later that he had, you know, crates full of this stuff already. So the fact that he was sending his night watchman off to get another bottle of it seems a little suspicious. He basically was doing something in the basement of the factory that night, and steam and smoke were coming out of the building, and the night watchman was being kept away from it. So that all sounded very suspicious. Then you had these other workers who told the police that a couple of weeks before all this happened, Luker had given them this substance that he wanted them to break up in these, in these vats in the basement of the factory. And, and whatever it was, these guys didn't know, they called it strong stuff. Uh, it was like this white powdery stuff. And as they broke it up, it would burn the ha their hands if they touched it and they're putting in water. They didn't know why their boss was telling them to fill vats with this substance, uh, this, you know, formula, with this white powder and the water. And then, flash forward to early May, after his wife has disappeared, now Adolf Luker asks the same guys to clean up what's in the basement. And they describe how there's a vat in the basement 
with this gooey red brown substance in it. Again, it was kind of acidy to the touch and that they had to scrape it out, dump it out into the, you know, outside of the factory. And, you know, hearing these stories, the police start to develop the theory that Ada Fluker had killed his wife and then somehow dissolved her body in one of these vats. And that that gooey substance that the workers had seen that day that they cleaned up was whatever remained of his wife. And to add to their suspicion, when they investigate this vat, they find some bones and a ring, right? Right, right. So the police go to the factory now and decide that they need to look at this for themselves and see if anything remains. And I find this to be one of the curious parts of the story, because on the one hand, if in fact Anna Flukert pulled off this gruesome crime, not only killing his wife, but dissolving her body, and then you know meticulously planning it, which is part of what seems so macabre about it. You know, if he if he had had these workers uh, prepare the solution, which in, turns out included the chemical potash, if he was having them prepare it a couple weeks beforehand, was he already at that point thinking, I'm going to kill my wife, um, and when I kill her, I'm going to need, need a way to get rid of her body, and uh, this bat would be a great place to do it, and I can have my workers help me out with it, and they'll never know what's going on. Or was this somehow, you know, was that for some other purpose, and then it just conveniently was there when he killed his wife on the spur of the moment without really much premeditation? So that, you know, that's part of the mystery here. But then the follow-up is that, uh, first of all, he apparently trusts these workers enough to clean, clean up the mess he made that he either thinks they're too stupid to realize that this is the remains of his wife or that they'll talk to the police or that, you know, he believes that they would never betray him or whatever. But he leaves this very important part of the crime, cleaning up the remains to his workers. And then they apparently don't do a very good job of it because, you know, a couple of weeks later, the police show up and they still find some of this goo in there. The vat had been cleaned out, but hardly totally clean, which makes you wonder. I mean, did Adolf Luker check out the work that his workers were doing cleaning up the crime scene? And if so, uh, <laughs> did he notice that there were still little uh, pieces of uh, his wife uh, left there? It's very puzzling. Um but essentially, yes, the police went there. They found some of this goo is still there, and they found some bone fragments and um, tiny little pieces, not even really complete human bones, but pieces that they believe might be fragments of a human skeleton. You know, like barely enough. I, th- I think everything that was found there could probably hold in the palm of your hand. And there was a ring, you know, which had the letters LL engraved on it, which would obviously seemed to be Louisa Lukert, and even a bit of uh, metal from what appeared to be a corset. So at this point, the police believe that these gruesome little fragments are what remains of Louisa Lukert, and they, at this point they charge A.F. Lukert with first-degree murder. And the news about this crime hits Chicago like a bombshell and becomes a very sensational news story. First of all, because Lukert was a fairly well-known figure in, in the German community. So, you know, the fact that he was this well-known sausage maker adds a kind of 
celebrity element to the story. But mostly, I think it's just the fact that the way that he supposedly supposedly disposed of the body was so gruesome. You know, that adds to the sensationalism of the crime. And then there's the underlying mystery. Well, did did a homicide even actually occur here? Is it possible that his wife actually did run off somewhere and she's still alive out there somewhere? And if that's the case, how can you charge this guy with murder? So this is the point at which it becomes a huge story in Chicago newspapers. Can, can you explain what pot ash is? So the substance that Adolf Luker allegedly used to, to to dissolve his wife's body was crude potash, which um, you make that by burning hardwood trees. Uh, the ashes are dissolved in water, and then the liquid is drained off. Um, and it's a substance that is used uh, for fertilizing plants and dyeing fabric. And um, it was... Uh, common in, in things like manufacturing soap, which is essentially what A.F. Luker claimed that he was using it for. Um, now, one of the questions, of course, I have, and I'm sure your listeners will have and my readers will have, is whether this idea of dissolving a body with some sort of solution made out of potash would even work. There were tests done at the time, which, uh, you know, of course, you've got dueling experts, uh, some of whom claim for the defense that this would not have worked. Uh, but then there are scientists hired by the prosecution who try to do the same thing, dissolve a, dissolve a cadaver in this sort of solution, and it does work. <laughs> Perhaps someone, uh, I don't know if someone uh, today would want to uh, try duplicating uh, what A.F. Luker did just to test whether it worked, but it, it is an interesting question. I'd like to ask you about the police inspection. Specifically, the man heading things up, Inspector Michael Schack, a very famous detective in Chicago at the time. Is that right? And he was involved in the investigation of the Haymarket riot, the murder of Dr. Cronin, and he was responsible for the Lutgart case, too. Correct? Right. And you also had Herman Schutler, uh, who was a rising official in the Chicago police so Shaq and Schutler, who were both kind of from the Germanic side of the police department, and it's worth noting that the stereotype is true that a lot of Irish were cops, but you had this kind of back and forth of different ethnic groups and uh, political groups within the police department who would uh, rise and fall in power depending on who was mayor at the time. Uh, <laughs> civil service laws were kind of a new thing, so, you know... Um, they were kind of political figures in addition to being uh, straightforward police investigators. And there were people who hated Michael Shack and people who thought that he was going to be the savior who would uh, crack down on crime in Chicago. But both of these guys, Shack and Schutler, had been involved in uh, the Haymarket uh, square bombing in 1886. And I know you've done a previous podcast about that. And in that case, I mean, you can sort of see these guys as cops who are on the side of law and order. Well, law and order in the sense that they are, uh, you know, going after anarchists and things like that, uh, and sometimes bending the rules in terms of uh, what might be considered acceptable in a court of law. So I think both of these cops were intent on solving a crime and doing justice. They weren't necessarily out to railroad anyone, but. Given their history and given the history of the Chicago police in that era, 
Uh, it wouldn't be totally surprising if they bent the rules in some places, and so you sort of wonder if all the evidence they're presenting is exactly above board the way it's, the way it's being presented. So can you tell us about Lutgaard's interrogation? Yeah, uh, one thing that's interesting here is that the Chicago police in this era were famous, or perhaps you could say notorious, for their interrogations of, of suspects. They were known for something called the sweat box, which wasn't necessarily a literal sweat box of the sort where, you know, you're putting the suspect in a hot room and making him sweat. But they were known for beating up or using psychological tactics to get people to confess. And in particular, one of these cops that we're talking about, Herman Schutler, became famous for getting confessions out of people. And he always claimed that, you know, he never used any brutal tactics to do it. Uh, people suspected him of being a hypnotist because he always seemed to be able to get people to confess. But the uh, in this case, uh, Adolf Lutgert does not confess. So, you know, I'm not sure what that says about uh, Lutgert, if he was really e- either, uh, you know, I mean, you could read it as him being innocent and he's not going to confess to a crime he didn't commit. Or, you know, he was just uh, really uh, an adamant about uh, telling his story the way he wanted to tell it and insisting that uh, his wife had uh, run off and that he was innocent of it. And in the meantime, there were reporters following up on their own leads, correct? Doing their own separate investigations apart from the police. Yeah. uh, Actually, I found it rather remarkable that the police did not secure the crime scene. So then you have reporters uh, traipsing into the factory and themselves uh, like looking around uh, where the vat was and uh, finding what they believe are, you know, more pieces of evidence and picking them up and writing about it. Uh, All of which, you know, like even if, if it's true that there was more evidence there, now it's contaminated by the process that someone else has picked it up. And then, you know, once Lukert is in the, the jail, you've got uh, reporters who are basically allowed what seems like almost free access to come into the jail and talk with him. And then you also have uh, one of the interesting things that develops is that uh, because this is, this is a story about a woman who supposedly disappeared, people around the Midwest and even across the country uh, start reporting that they've seen women that they think might be Louisa Lukert. And the reporters uh, run after these stories and newspapers around the country print these stories about strange women who have wandered into the towns, most of which turn out to be cases of mistaken identity, uh, some of which may be actual hoaxes of someone saying, I'm Louisa Lukert, and then it turning out to be just a gag, essentially. I found those stories to be rather evocative in their own way regardless of whether they add anything to solving this crime, they also let you know that I guess it was a fairly common thing for distressed women who were uh, either on their down on their luck or having mental problems or just impoverished to wander into places around the United States and to get strange looks from the people there. Um, that gives you an idea of what the economy was like in 1897, that there would be these these women who are so desperate that, that they are just wandering the countryside. 
So on June 5th, a jury indicted Lutgart for murder. How did Lutgart react to this? And what was the strategy for his defense team going into the trial? Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that I found interesting about the indictment and uh, perhaps someone who's more of a a historian of the law could uh, weigh in on this more than I uh, could. But I found it very curious that the indictment lists out this whole range of possible ways that Lukert may have killed his wife because the police really had no idea what actually happened to her. They believed that Lukert dissolved her body, but how actually did he kill her? Was it the shooter? Did he strangle her? Did he knife her? Did he punch her? So the indictment accused him of striking, pushing, shoving, and thrusting a certain knife in on the head and belly. But then it also suggests, well, maybe he pulled, pushed, cast through her down upon the ground with great force and violence. And then while she was lying on the ground, he struck, beat, pushed, pressed, and kicked her. So it's kind of this multiple choice uh, list of possibilities where, you know, rather than just acknowledging that we don't know how he killed her. They throw out all these different possible ways he might have killed her. And after this indictment comes out, Lukert gave an interview in German uh, to the local German newspaper, which I translated with some help from people who are a little better at German than I am. You know, just saying that the newspapers are getting everything about this story wrong. And it's a mystery to him how his wife's rings ended up in that vat. Maybe the police put them there, he, he suggests. Um, and he's more firmly convinced than ever that his wife is still alive somewhere. He says, I would not be surprised if one day she would appear before my cell door. I don't believe that 12 citizens of the city can ever be brought together who would say, based on the body of evidence collected by the police after such hard work, that I am guilty. So he's sounding very confident at this point, despite the fact that he's been indicted for murder. And sightings of the alleged Mrs. Lutgard kept coming in around the country, didn't they? Right, right. Not to give too much of a spoiler here, but (laughs) I've heard people say after hearing about the story of my book or reading it, there are people who speculate that, you know, at the end of this whole story that perhaps she was still out there. But, you know, you can never rule out. It's it's really hard to prove a negative. It's hard to prove that she wasn't out there somewhere. But to me, none of these stories of possible appearances of Mrs. Lukert turn out to be credible. None of them are persuasive. Uh, It's hard to believe that any of them were actually her, Uh, which then leaves the question of, it it seems that that her death on May 1st, 1897 is the most likely uh, scenario of what happened to her. The ring with her initials found in the vat Lutgart and his attorney accused the police of planting that ring. But the whole story sounds so strange. I mean, where would they have gotten that ring to plant? Yeah, it's plausible that the police played some games with some of the evidence. But that one piece does seem, it seems very unlikely that the police would plant a ring and that it would be engraved with the woman's initials. (laughs) I suppose they could have gone to a jeweler and uh, hired a jeweler to engrave a ring with that. But uh, that would leave a kind of a trail of uh, evidence. I, I, I'm kind of going a bit out of order here uh, in terms of the sequence of what happens, but it might be worth mentioning here that uh, there is a story that surfaces later uh, during the trials about possibility that the police uh, got some human bones 
from an insane asylum on the outskirts of Chicago, a place called Dunning, which is a very notorious uh, poor house, an insane asylum that had a graveyard where, with the potter's field where a lot of uh, poor people were buried. And there were some of the uh, people, the inmates who lived there, who claimed that they'd seen a police officer come out there. And um, this was right around the time of a scandal involving some cadavers being sold off to anatomy professors uh, from this place. So, you know, one of the people out there saw this police officer talking with one of these guys who was selling bodies. Uh, so the theory that the defense put forward here was that, you know, the police decided uh, – we need some evidence against the Lukert, and it would be really helpful if we had some bones. And where can we get some bones? We'll go out to the insane asylum where they sell off bodies anyway and uh, get some bones out there. I would guess that this did not happen. Uh, it, it is a pretty outlandish story, but some pretty outlandish things happened <laughs> in Chicago in the 1800s. So I can't rule it out entirely, but uh, it's and it's worth considering the possibility that something like that happened. But the rings, as you mentioned, would be a whole other story. Back again after these messages. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we are back for a final time. So getting into the trial a little bit, some of the most damning testimony for me was from the factory workers who you'd think as employees might even be on his side. But their accounts of Lutgart's strange behavior the night of his wife's disappearance, cleaning up the sludge, etc., is pretty important and unbiased testimony, right? Right, exactly. And it's very vivid. You've got the sense that everyone believed these stories. These men weren't making this up. They seemed very credible. They seemed like to use a, a bit of a cliche here, you know, simple working class people. Uh, they weren't uh, highly educated, but you know, with the help of uh, translators uh, to translate their, their Polish or German in the courtroom, they were very articulate and they could tell this vivid story of what they remembered, all these strange goings on at the factory, which I mentioned earlier, you know, the potash being put into the vats, the way he uh, kept the people out of the factory basement that night and the, the cleanup afterwards, the botched cleanup, really. And the other thing witnesses talked about, which really was pretty damning, was the way Adolf Luker behaved in the weeks following his wife's disappearance. He was acting like a man who had something to hide. He would get upset when he heard that people might be talking to the police. 
Um, there was at least one person whom he offered uh, employ- lifetime employment, <laughs> you know, if you don't talk to the police. Um, so he was acting like a man who was trying to keep the police from finding out what happened. That doesn't prove that he committed murder, but it does raise your suspicions about, like, what did this guy have to hide and why wasn't he being more forthcoming about the events that night? Exactly. So as the trial progressed, information started to come out about the domestic difficulties between the Lutgarts. Yes. So the jury hears about uh, the arguments that he and his wife have been having, the way his wife had been uh, talking about disappearing, but also, you know, some previous incidents where it seemed like he was committing domestic violence or threatening to kill her. I mean, I hate to compare every case to the O.J. Simpson case, but, you know, it does remind me in a way of in the famous O.J. Simpson murder trial, how there was uh, evidence about his history of uh, violence in the home and the debate over whether that had anything to do with the question of whether he killed his ex-wife and whether that's relevant or not. And you had a similar situation in this Lukert case here. The prosecution's theory is that you see this history of the way the person behaves and that adds to the proof that he killed her. On the other hand, the defense would say all those previous incidents don't have anything to do with what happened on the night of May 1st, so why are we even bringing it up? Among the witnesses called to testify were some scientific experts, including a high school chemistry teacher named Mark Delafontaine. What were his conclusions? Yeah, in some ways, this was a groundbreaking case because there hadn't been a lot lot of this kind of scientific testimony in criminal trials before. And in fact, I believe, uh, and it's hard to totally nail this down with certainty, but I believe that this was the first uh, murder trial where you had uh, an anthropologist testifying. That was uh, George Dorsey from the Field Museum. Uh, but you also have people like Della Fontaine who you wonder about their credentials. Rules were developed later in some Supreme Court cases, the Supreme Court case that came later, over who is qualified to be an expert witness. You can't just put anyone on the witness stand and have them testify about bones and whether they're human bones or not. Uh, you have to show that this person has academic credentials, that they know what they're talking about. So some of these witnesses like Delafontaine, you wonder, <laughs> like, what do they really know about the topic? Uh, maybe they know more than the layman uh, serving on the jury or a person walking down the street. But do they really know enough to say with certainty whether these bones that were found were human? And that was the essential question that these witnesses were talking about. And the prosecution witnesses came very solidly down on the uh, conclusion that these were human bones. And from what I've heard, uh, after my book came, came out, I've talked, I, I gave a talk about it uh, to a forensic anthropology class at uh, Ohio State University, which was interesting. I, I, and I think I learned some from that myself that today's forensic anthropologists say that this is plausible, that, you know, the pieces of bone, even though it's just like a little tiny chunk of a bone that's been dissolved away with some kind of acid that that you can look at that and you know without even doing dna testing comparing it to a human skeleton and figuring out uh which part of the skeleton it came from uh you can say with the, the experts can say with with pretty good certainty that 
this is human or this is part of a pig or this is part of a monkey or whatever. I'm a little less uh, certain when I look at the testimony from the Lucre trial, whether these expert witnesses really knew what they were talking about. And you had some defense experts who contradicted it and then were ridiculed on the witness stand. And at the end of the day, some of the jurors and people who were in the courtroom said that they really didn't know which side to believe when it came to the experts. So the question is whether the jury threw that evidence out the window when they were looking at which facts to consider or whether these these experts did sway them one way or the other uh, to believe that these were human bones. You know, that's the essential question there. So do you think that the jury couldn't reach a verdict in the first trial because they they just didn't know who to believe? Yeah, I think that's part of it. And so, yes, the first trial, uh, there are two trials, and the first trial ends with a hung jury. And uh, this is the trial where uh, those reporters were eavesdropping through the vent on the jury deliberations. And then in addition to that, a lot of the jurors spoke to the report, to the media afterwards. So one of the things I found really remarkable here is uh, how detailed of a record we have of what the jury was saying it's kind of a weird quirk of our legal system today that, well, our legal system throughout our American history, that we really don't know what jurors talk about in the jury room. It's considered this uh, secret thing which should be kept secret unless the jurors want to talk to the press afterwards. But a lot of trials hinge on this question of, you know, was there undue pressure? Did the jury really consider the evidence the, the way it should have? Did the jurors follow the rules the judge laid down? And in this case, it's nice that we, I mean, you might say it's totally unethical or, you know, maybe even there's some crime being violated. That the reporters were uh, eavesdropping on a jury and reporting their deliberations. But, you know, for one time, we can actually see, like, oh, here's what they were saying. And I think one of the key things here was just that essential mystery of the case that whether or not Louisa Lukert actually was dead is a lingering doubt among the jurors. How can we convict this man if there's a, even a remote possibility that his wife is still out there somewhere? Uh, how can we say that he killed her? Right. So part of what is so fascinating to me about this trial is the, this attraction some women had for the accused murderer. The courtroom in the Lutgard trial was packed with women, in many cases, young German immigrant women, many of whom clamored to talk to Lutgard, flirt with him. What is your take on this phenomenon? It's quite remarkable, isn't it? Yes, it, it is remarkable. And I don't know uh, if this was a common thing at uh, earlier uh, criminal trials. Um, in America, and I know that the, 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 this was not obviously the first big sensational trial that got press coverage in, in Chicago and around the country, but it, it was one of the early uh, media circus trials, uh, a precedent to ones we know today like O.J. Simpson. Um, and, you know, I think it's a common phenomenon that we hear of in later trials that uh, some women, uh, and I don't, I don't want to sound sexist here, <laughs> I'm sorry, but this could also apply to men, I suppose, uh, but some people uh, seem attracted to the uh, person who's a criminal defendant. And in this case, uh, you had big crowds showing up at the trial, 
a lot of people in the crowd were women. Newspapers at that time and the more conservative elements in society were very critical of women who were showing independence and uh, being out in society. Uh, just going to a trial and watching it was sort of an act of uh, rebellion against the strict rules of how women were supposed to behave. So, you know, even if these women were not sympathetic towards Adolf Luker, um, there is evidence uh, that some of these women were sympathetic to his wife and were there at the courthouse because they wanted to see justice done for this evil man who had was a domestic abuser and mistreated his wife and killed her and committed this gruesome act of dissolving her body and that there was a sort of desire for vengeance. Totally understandable. But then there there are women who are attracted to him and say so in newspaper articles, and he receives uh, letters at the jail uh, seeking his hand in marriage and sending flowers and candies, which you know brings up some kind of uh, jokes uh, in the newspapers about you know if these women are sympathetic towards him and want to marry him, do they think that he is still married <laughs> to his wife who's out there? In which case they're suggesting bigamy. Or do they think he killed his wife and they still are attracted to him for some reason? I'm sure someone else has probably done a, a more in-depth psychological study of these issues of how people are sometimes attracted to criminals who are in the media. Uh, I don't know if it's the there's something sort of subversive about it that appeals to some people, or just the fact that you know, for one thing, he was a wealth he had been a wealthy man and was considered a by our standards today, he might not be considered an attractive man. He was sort of, a, I'm forgetting what exactly his age was at this time, in his 50s, a little bit overweight, you know, with the beard and or mustache, kind of look, looking like what you would expect a substantial German man of the 1890s to look like. But within the German community, that was considered uh, the look for someone who had power and wealth. So you can see how perhaps he might be an appealing figure in some ways to, to those people. But in a lot of cases, I, I suspect it was just the celebrity of the whole thing. The people, people wanted to be there to witness this fascinating story as it was unfolding in the courtroom. And some of them were drawn to this man's charisma. Um, it's hard to figure out exactly what his charisma was, but he, obviously he had some that people were drawn to him in that way. So Ludgard gets a, a bit of a break with a, a mistrial, but a few months later, there is another trial. How is this new trial different than the first? Two things that I think are significant. Um, one is that he had a change in his legal representation. And um, essentially, I mean, he was having trouble paying his legal bills because of his uh, financial hardship that he had fallen onto. So he had a pretty stellar legal team in the first trial. They quit after the first trial, and he ends up being represented mostly by this attorney, Lawrence Harmon, who really, I don't know if they will qualify as incompetent defense, but there is evidence uh, from the reporting of how he was aggravating people in the courtroom. So one of the low points of the trial has to be when uh, the def this defense lawyer keeps interrupting one of the witnesses and one of the jurors gets so annoyed by this that the juror basically tells the defense lawyer to shut up in the middle of uh, <laughs> open court. 
So you can see at that point, it's like, wow, this guy's not really winning over the jury. And then the other thing is that one of the key things in, in all these big criminal trials is the question of whether the defendant will testify in his own defense. And Adolf Lukert obviously wanted, he seemed to want to get on the witness stand and tell the whole world that he's innocent. And, and you, you know, this is common in criminal cases that defendants want to be able to proclaim that. But a lot of times defense attorneys tell them, no, don't do that because uh, you can open yourself up to cross-examination and you could incriminate yourself somehow. So in the first trial, Lukert's defense lawyers persuaded him not to testify. In the second trial, he does testify and tells the story about how he claims that this whole thing that was going on in the factory with the vats and the solution was his effort at making soap to clean the factory, even though there's other evidence that he had plenty of soap. So the question is, why would and he, he didn't know really know how to make soap? So he was kind of trying this thing out for the first time uh, in the middle of the night. This story, I, I, I think the jurors probably just did not believe that story. So his whole defense his whole alibi just does not ring true. And I wonder if uh, the jury would have found him guilty if he had not taken the witness stand. But seeing him on the witness stand telling the story in his own words obviously did not persuade these jurors. And in this trial, they end up finding him guilty. And he was sentenced to life in prison. That's right. And uh, there was some outrage among certain people in the newspapers of the time that he was given life in prison instead of being sentenced to hang, which was the way uh, the death penalty was carried out during that era. And in fairness, I mean, really, if you look at the statistics of uh, what was going on in Chicago and Illinois at that time, most people who were found guilty of murder were not executed. Most of them were sent to prison so in a way, the sentence that uh, Lukert received here was just a typical sentence of what m- most murder cases would end with. But there were uh, plenty of hangings back in those days, and especially for a high-profile case like this, uh, it was almost considered necessary among uh, people who were uh, advocates of being tough on crime and to set an example for the rest of society you had to take the people who committed these high-profile, the most brutal, gruesome crimes, uh, the most subversive crimes, and you really had to make an example of them. And the way to do that was to hang them. But in this case, the, the jury did not go that route. And some of the jurors and some of the speculation around it suggests that even though they found him guilty, there's still that lingering doubt about, you know, what if his wife is still alive? What if what if we hang him and a week later, Louisa Lukert shows up? Uh, at that point, it would be impossible to correct uh, the injustice that had been committed. Whereas if we send him off to prison and she shows up, uh, at that point, he could be uh, released and the case could be uh, thrown out. So, you know, I think it's plausible that that was part of the reason why they reached that verdict. But in the end here, he is sent off to prison in Joliet, Illinois, a famous prison uh, just a little bit southwest of Chicago. And he doesn't live long in in prison, right? It's like only a year or so. Yeah, I believe it was about a year and a half. Um, 
at that point, he was still trying to appeal his case. And part of the system back then was that to even appeal your case, you had to get a transcript of the trial and no transcript existed other than uh, shorthand notes from court reporters. So, you know, his defense team first had to raise money to even prepare that, which was going to be a lot of money. And uh, it hadn't gotten very far. Um, he was still languishing in prison when he essentially uh, died of natural causes from uh, probably from all that uh, sausage heavy diet he'd had over his life uh, probably contributed to his death. But at that point he died. And, uh, you know, the, there was a massive turnout for his funeral in Chicago. Uh, people who were cured. I don't know. Again, it's hard to say as when we were talking about the women in the trial, it's hard to say how many of the people turning out for his trial were just there out of curiosity um, and how many were there because they supported him and believed he was innocent. I think it's probably more the former group, people who realize that Adolf Lukert's murder trial was a huge story in Chicago, and I'm going to be able to tell my grandchildren that I was at his funeral, uh, you know, watching as his casket was being taken down the street out to the, down to the cemetery. One of the myths surrounding the murder for many years was that Adolf had ground his wife into sausage. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> right. And, you know, when I tell people I wrote a book about Adolf Lukert, if they know who he is, which uh, you know, a lot of people have no idea, but if they had heard anything about the case uh, in Chicago over the, over the years, you know, I, write, I wrote the book more than 100 years after the trial happened, uh, but there's still a few, you know, like old time, old timers in Chicago or people who uh, grew up here and heard stories from their family who, who read books on Chicago history. And the first thing they would say is, oh, that's the guy who ground his wife up into sausage. And that was also the story that was being told at the time. And you, I mean, you can see how that's that this urban myth developed out of the story that, you know, he according to the police, he killed his wife and dissolved her body in a vat that was in his sausage factory. But there was never any accusation by the police or anyone really that he had turned her into sausage. Uh, but at the time that this was in the, in, in the news, there are reports about how sausage sales plummeted in Chicago and elsewhere. Uh, people were suddenly, uh, people suddenly found it very unappetizing, uh, to eat sausage, which was a very, standard Chicago food at that time um, while they were reading these stories in the news newspapers about uh, these uh, gruesome uh, happenings at a sausage factory and the, hearing these stories about maybe he turned his wife into sausage. Uh, but, you know, sausage sales were covered after that. That actually happened too at another point in Chicago history um, after Upton Sinclair's book, the Jungle was was published. Right. The sale of Chicago meat took a nosedive when when people learned what was actually happening in the stockyards. Yeah, exactly. And in up to the Sinclair's case uh, that was published in 1904, which is less than a decade after the Lucre case, with the Jungle. Uh, I mean, I I think that book, uh, while it may uh, take some uh, artistic liberty. It's a pretty accurate depiction of what Chicago was like during that time and how uh, the stockyards worked. So, <laughs> you know, if you read that book, you would be correct to feel a little uh, nauseated at the, the thought of eating meat from those places. Uh, so it's totally understandable why people would react that way. 
So where can people learn more about you and your work? Well, there are two websites I'll mention. Uh, one is the website for my book, uh, which is alchemyofbones.com. Um, and then I also have a website uh, that's my personal – well, it's, it's sort of like a website where I've got uh, articles I've written on various topics, including a lot of other historical uh, issues and topics from Chicago history for various media outlets that I've freelanced for over the years. Um, and the links to all that are on the website robertlorizel.com, which I'll uh, spell it Robert, and then my last name is L-O-E-R-Z-E-L.com. Thank you again for your time today. Well, thank you for the conversation. Again, my guest today has been Robert Lorizel, author of Alchemy of Bones, Chicago's Lutgert Murder Case of 1897. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.